Please turn with me back to Acts chapter 17 in your Bible. Let me just, for the sake of getting everybody on the same page here, let me uh, draw your attention to the screen for a moment. If you haven't been here or if you're visiting, uh, we've been following here Paul's second missionary journey, and uh, he made his way up from Syrian Antioch through the Galatian churches, uh, through what is today western Turkey, really, to Troas, near the ancient city of Troy. He made his way over to, to Philippi, and uh, they planted a church there in uh, Philippi, as you can see right here, and then they traveled to Thessalonica and planted a church there at Thessalonica, and then they got off the primary road. They went about 45 miles off the primary road, and they planted a church in Berea. Each time, Paul is getting chased out of each city, and he is about to make his way to Athens, which is going to be a 200-plus mile uh, journey by boat there. Just so you can hang, uh, so you can stay oriented with the next map. This body of water right here, you're about to see, right here, okay? So just so you know where we are. And so here again, uh, he, he, he was in Berea, as we saw last week, and he makes his way uh, down to uh, Athens. He's going he's gonna to show his, when he shows up at the city of Athens, uh, he will see, this is a very low quality image, but it's the best I have here. This is an overview model representation for the spots we're going to be at in today's passage. The marketplace, or the agora, is this area right over here. Uh, the extremely fam famous uh, Acropolis in Athens that you've all seen pictures of as it decays to this day, but is still partially still standing. Some of you have been there in person. And then the Areopagus is right here. This is also known as Mars Hill, another way to translate Areopagus. That's uh, very likely where Paul actually is when he, when he speaks to the Areopagites that, uh, that time here in Acts 17. And the next picture I'm going to show you is, is from the Areopagus, like an arrow pointing towards the Acropolis right there. So that's today. Someone is actually standing there uh, where Paul very likely gave his very testimony to the Areopagites. Looking over uh, up on the hill, you can see uh, the Acropolis uh, just a little bit further away. So does everybody know where this takes place? Okay, just don't want that. It's nice to re remember, this is real. These really happened, real time and space, places you can go visit today. But Paul's going to end up right there. And to this day at Mars Hill, they have in Greek the text of the sermon Paul gave in this passage in Greek, in the original language, right there, uh, hanging there, at, at, or, or actually in the wall of the stone at Mars Hill. And I don't know if some of you may have actually seen that with your own eyes, but where Paul gave this uh, famous message. Okay, let's look at today's passage. Since I already read it, I'm going to just work through it verse by verse as we go. I'm going to name the sermon today, uh, Presenting the Gospel in a Secular Age. Presenting the Gospel in a Secular Age age. And you may already think, well, Paul's audience wasn't exactly secular in our modern-day sense, was it? Well, not identical. But I think you'll be surprised how similar the group is Paul is addressing in today's passage from perhaps some other places in Scripture. Now, a few words of introduction. Uh, Luke cannot, you know, he has only so much space on his scroll that he can write his uh, book of Acts on. So, he is going to be very selective in the details he includes and the details he leaves out because he has limited space. That's common sense. So, what Luke does is he doesn't tell us the full speech everyone gives every time they give a speech in Acts because, you know, that would be really long. So, what does he do inst instead? Luke instead gives us selective speeches that are representative of what the characters would say every time they're talking to that kind of group. I think that's what he's doing. And so, in Acts 13, we already were through this, Paul, we give sort of Paul's typical speech in a synagogue, and they give the example that he gives in a synagogue in Acts 13. And you get, okay, it's a really long message. Luke later will just say Paul was reasoning in the synagogue, but he doesn't tell you the whole speech because he already told it to you once. Acts 13 is the typical thing Paul would say 
to a group of Jewish people or God-fearers in a synagogue? Well, in Acts 20, in the future, Paul is talking to the leaders of a church, the Ephesian elders at the shore at Miletus, and he… it's a long message there, a long message we get recorded. That is, I think, a typical talk. I think it's, I think it's accurately recording what Paul said, of course, but I think it's also a typical talk of how Paul would speak to church leadership. I think you get one example, and I think you should just think that's how Paul normally spoke generally to church leadership. Well, that brings us to today's passage. Because today's passage, I think more scholarly work has been done referring to this passage than any passage in Acts. It's very important. Why? This is the longest sermon in the New Testament addressing, and I don't, I don't use this word as an insult, but I mean the word literally, a pagan audience a truly pagan audience. So today we might say a completely secular audience. This is the longest address written to people with no background whatsoever in the Bible that we get in the entire New Testament. So, why does that matter? Do you, you know why that matters, right? This is telling us, it's a training manual for us as Christians today to say, if we are addressing people, which we are more than ever in our society, who are truly secular, who do not know much at all about the Bible, we can learn a lot from this passage Again, this is, I'm not, this is not an attempt to be insulting. That's not at all my point. But, you know, um, it's getting to the point today where secularization has become so strong that people know the Bible very poorly today, uh, generally speaking. Uh, you can talk to a college student right down the street here who may not even be aware that the New Testament and the Old Testament make up the Bible, that there are two Testaments. They may not know anything about Moses, perhaps they've heard about a movie with Moses, it was Christian Bale movie, and then there's the, who, who, what's the old one? Uh, who played Moses in the old one? Uh, Charlton Heston, thank you, yes, that's exactly right. They, they may not know more than a few movies about, about Moses or a few Bible characters, and certainly they know something about Jesus, but when it comes to the details of the Bible, biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high in our world today. And so when it comes to addressing uh, a secular age, there is a lot to learn from Paul's uh, approach here at Mars Hill. A couple of things to think about as we, as we work through this passage. Look with me starting here at verses 14 and 15. We'll see Paul making his way to Athens. It says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there back at Berea in the Macedonian area. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Verse 16, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Well, let me stop here again. I got to hear an audio, it was online, of Don Carson teaching through this passage, and this must have been back in the 90s at least, uh, when he was teaching on it. And he mentions John Stott's famous book from, I don't know, 50 years ago perhaps, Basic Christianity. Now, to my embarrassment, I have to admit, I have never read Basic Christianity, okay? I'm talking about a book I've never read before. But uh, it, it was used widely for evangelism when it, when it came out. It was just a basic presentation of the gospel, and Don Carson actually said his wife was converted reading Basic Christianity, which was wonderful. And Do John Stott happened to be in the audience the night that, that Don Carson was speaking on this passage. And he said, with the author of the book in the room, he said, now, John Stott's here tonight, but I want to say something. I am so thankful to God for this book, Basic Christianity. My wife was converted reading it. But I want to say, and I think John would agree with me, the book will do very little good today. To which it's, you know, it's a little awkward to say that, right, with the author in the room. And he said, here's why I say that. The book, Basic Christianity, which is a wonderful book of the gospel, it assumes too much of the Christian worldview at the get-go 
that if someone is completely biblically illiterate, they'll be lost from page one. If someone just… if, if, if you walk up to… by the way, John Stott from the audience, I heard him say, absolutely correct. Just, I agree. The book I wrote assumed a sort of a Christianized subculture that you would just sort of know the basic categories of God and judgment and those things. And today, we are so, so many are so biblically illiterate that if you walk up to someone on the street and you say, hey, uh, my name's Mark, what's your name? Hey, John, nice to meet you. Okay, John, did you know that Jesus loves you and He died for your sins and He, 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 he has a great plan for your life? Now, I, I just want to start and say this. Anybody doing any evangelism is better than anybody doing no evangelism, okay? So, I, if you're doing any evangelism at all, I think it was D.L. Moody who said, you know, he was being criticized for his evangelistic approach, and he said, okay, how do you do your evangelism if you're criticizing me? The person said, well, I don't, I don't do evangelism. And then D.L. Moody said, well, I like the way that I do it better than the way you don't do it, okay? So, I, I, anybody doing any evangelism, I will take over no evangelism, okay? But let's also be wise in how we do evangelism because it is very possible if we walk up to someone on the street and say, Jesus died for you and loves you, they will instantly misinterpret everything you just said. They don't yet have the worldview framework in place to actually understand any of the words you just used. Jesus who? Died for me? What, what does that even mean? Uh, he rose from the dead? Okay, where did this happen? 2,000 years ago across the world? That does, okay, I, it, just, it just goes straight over the head, just no, no connection. Or you could walk up to someone, and, and I, I don't recommend this approach either, but you could just say, you know, I've heard people in the past say, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which uh, I don't think that's the best approach. But if someone hears that today, they might, they might go, okay, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Well, you know, I really enjoy partying on the weekends, and God must really think that's great because it makes me happy. And so if God loves me, He must affirm that, and he must, He's probably helping me make that a great party. So that's great that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life because my plan is to party. Just you see what I'm saying? Until we start to put the framework of the gospel in place, the gospel itself has no coherency. It doesn't actually make sense because we don't even know what the terms mean. If someone, you know, someone walks up and says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, a secular person today is going to say, can I help you, sir? Ma'am, are you okay? I, I have no, can we call the people with the straitjackets? I don't know what you're… Well, who is the Lamb of God? He's the Christ. I'm sure He is. I mean, just we, we, we need to do some work today. So, if you were born uh, in the baby boomer generation, if you, if you were uh, a 20-something in the 60s or 70s, uh, based on, again, I wasn't there, but based on what I know <laughs> in the 60s and 70s, you could, for the most part in our country, walk up to someone and just start talking about Jesus, and guess what? People generally knew who you were talking about, and they had a basic idea of what was going on. But because of the way society has been moving in recent years, we need to do… we're going to have to start further back and we're going to have to do a lot more groundwork to get towards the gospel so that it can actually make sense to those that we care about and those that we love. And so this passage is so valuable, and I hope to spend two Sundays working through it. We'll sort of stop in the middle of a sermon, which I hate to do in the middle of Paul's sermon. But we're going to work through this to learn what we can about how to approach a society that just doesn't know much about Scripture at all. Okay. Look at verses 16 and 17. Let me read them again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, there's certainly a wrong way to take this, but there's also a biblical way to take this. 
I wonder if this is true of you. Do you find yourself doing a couple things, and I hope you do. When you see the world as it is, when you go around our Athens, right, not Athens, Greece, Athens, Georgia, you walk around our Athens and you look at, um, you see idols, they're not going to be carved with wooden stone, but there are certainly things that we are in our hearts bowing down to and worshiping in this city amongst all different people. As we see these idols in our culture and on TV or on the internet or whatever, are we sincerely provoked by what we see? Now, there can be a self-righteous way to be provoked that we're not encouraging, but is there real grief, real being provoked? In fact, you remember when Barnabas and Paul had their little fight back in a few chapters ago? Remember the word paroxysm, that word for the, the, they, had this, uh, they had this moment of intense anger between them? This is a cognate of that same word, okay? This is that word again, paroxysm, where Paul felt provoked angry, provoked in spirit. He, he felt moved deeply in spirit when he walked through Athens, which was famous for idols tens of thousands of idols, temples everywhere you look, 70-foot-tall goddess, there she is, just holding a spear, unbelievable-looking, huge uh, temples everywhere. Everyone's obsessed with the temples and the idols, and Paul walks around the city. I'll, I'll tell you, if I was there in first-century Athens, Greece, with its incredible history that it had, you know, with all these philosophers, with Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and many others, it was so famous at this time. Admittedly, it was not in its heyday anymore. It was a little bit on its decline from its fame days a few centuries ago. But if I was there in the, the year 50 AD with Paul walking around the city, I think I would have been there with my, uh, I would have had my, my camera with me if they had one. I would be taking pictures because this is an amazing historical place. Just look at how historical and astonishing all these things that have taken place here. And I would be the good tourist walking around just in awe of all these things. Paul's not the good tourist. Paul's there and he is deeply moved. He is deeply agitated. He is angered in spirit because he doesn't see beautiful buildings and rich history. He sees godless idolatry, worshiping the creation over the Creator, falling prey to the wrong God and the wrong religious system, not knowing anything of Christ or the gospel, and his heart breaks, and he is in agony. And so, what does he do? Does Paul put on a sandwich board? You know what I'm talking about? And he's got the white sandwich board on both sides, and it says, like, repent or perish on both sides, and you're all going to hell, and walk out there with his megaphone and start screaming, you're all on your way to hell. Is that, is that how he starts his, his message? Uh, no. Now, he will talk about final judgment before this is over. So, hell will be implied in this sermon. But he doesn't start by walking out there and saying, look at how evil this is. You guys are lost in your sin. What is wrong with you people? He doesn't do that. Instead, look at verse 17. I love this. So, he's provoked in verse 16 with the idols. What does he do in verse 17? So, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, Paul reasons. Now, let me ask you this. Does our being provoked by the idols of our world and society, does it lead us to silence? That would be wrong, ultimately, to be silent. Paul wasn't silent. Does it lead us to rant angrily, just on social media, just, ah, just, just ranting angrily about how the world is? That would not be perhaps the most wise approach either. We shouldn't be silent. We shouldn't just angrily rant on some tangent. What does Paul do? He, he, he takes a hold of this provoking feeling and he channels it towards rational discussion, 
with other people who don't think like he thinks. He comes out and he reasons. This Greek word is where we get the word dialogue today, although it doesn't just mean dialogue. Uh, it, it's the word dialogue, a discussion, an intense discussion where he begins to speak about what he believes and hear what they believe, and there's a give and a take and a back and a forth, and he is reasoning passionately uh, with these people and presenting truth to them, first in the synagogue with the Jews and the, the God-fearing Gentiles, but then where else does he go? He goes into the marketplace. Let me, just, let me just give you a list so you don't get lost here on these points. So, just three quick things that Paul goes to reason in. Number one is the synagogue. Number two is the marketplace. And number three we'll look at in a moment is the academy, the philosophers. So, number one, the synagogue. Number two, the marketplace. And number three, the academy. Now, some of us will spend more time in one of these three than others. But we should always probably push ourselves out of our comfort zone and do more than we are comfortable doing. Okay, the synagogue, how do we apply that today? Uh, probably most of us are not going to be actually in a synagogue speaking to perhaps Orthodox Jews, although that is certainly a, a, a possibility. But today I think of more as someone who's grown up in church, right? I'll call that the synagogue. Someone with a Judeo-Christian background, they've heard the Bible. They know the categories of the Bible, but they're just not interested in the Bible. They no longer believe in that, and they've moved on. That would be more the synagogue, if you understand what I'm saying here. And so, people in your life who've grown up and are maybe nominally Christian, they kind of use the name Christian, maybe not, maybe sometimes, or maybe they've rejected it altogether. Those people, we can start in a different spot in our conversation because they at least have the background, the basic framework of the gospel, and we should spend time there. Listen, I, I teach at a high school. Uh, Jerry and Greg and I all teach at Christian high schools uh, in the area, middle school and high schoolers, depending on who it is who's teaching. And uh, we, we know that some of our students love the Lord deeply, even as early as sixth grade and, and 12th graders. Some of them love the Lord deeply. Some of them maybe have not yet come to know the Lord at all. I, I made it all the way almost through high school in a Christian school, not being a genuine believer. So we know that even there, there's a little bit of the synagogue, right? We're, we're talking to some kids who don't yet maybe know the Lord. Maybe they're even wrestling with atheism or secular in my classroom and they're asking questions. What a wonderful way to bring that with that background to speak truth and to love those students and to love them well. And we, we all know people in our families, perhaps, who've grown up with that background and we can find ways to minister to them and we need to do so more and more. Let me just say there, when we are talking to family members who've rejected the gospel, friends who've done so, Maybe this is not so much your problem, maybe I'm just talking from my own problems here, but if you're anything like me, it is very easy to let anger in a sinful way flavor our word choice and our tone of voice when it is going to be harmful and not helpful in those conversations. So if you're like me, that's a constant struggle. We, we, we need to pray and fight with all of our might that there would be a graciousness, a kindness, a patience, and a humility, and at the same time, convictional truth speaking. To get that balance right is a miracle. To be patient, kind, gracious, and non-compromisingly a truth speaker at the same time. Th that right there, a broken-hearted boldness, I've heard it called, a, a tender, uh, a compassionate truth-telling. Okay, number two, the marketplace. Paul goes to the Agora, the Roman marketplace there uh, in Athens. Now, wh what would be our marketplace's today. You could probably think of some. I heard one person mention, you know, coffee shops. That's true. It kind of is a modern-day place where you sort of gather, and you're sort of together in some sense, and you could start a conversation with a stranger, and, and, and you, you could talk there. It might be online. 
Uh, you might, you might, might be able to engage someone online. I had a student showing me he was evangelizing someone he, met, he was talking to online and trying to share the gospel with them last year, which I think is fantastic. Uh, it might be in the classroom setting whether it's a teacher or a student. It might be on your college campus. If you're coming back to college right now, it might be in your dorm. But this is the marketplace in public somewhere. It might be at your job. I think for a lot of us, that's going to be the place, at the place where we work, where there are Christians and non-Christians just sort of there and present and finding ways like Paul where it says daily in the marketplace, he was engaging with those who happened to be there. In God's sovereignty, just whoever happens to be there, Paul is speaking to them, and he is talking to them. And and can can I just, can I tell you, uh, Paul would have certainly looked like a strange human being. They're going to call him some names in just a second. Let me just say this, and I'm saying this to myself. We have to be okay with being called names when we are speaking the truth in love. If we are called names for that, we have to be okay with that. Jesus says, you know, blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, for your reward will be great in heaven. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'll tell you, the prophets who got the most praise in the Old Testament gave a message, a false message of good tidings. Peace, peace, when there is no peace, say the false prophets in Jeremiah. Everybody loves to hear peace, peace. But Jeremiah said, no, 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 destruction is coming, actually. And they did not want to hear that. And so they ended up throwing him into a pit, and the false prophets were, were received. So we just have to know, we are going to be called names at times. We're going to be looked at like we're strange at times, and we have to be secure in the love of Christ uh, no matter what comes our way. Look with me again. Let me reread again verses 17 now and 18. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I, I, I just laugh at that. Almost everybody agrees on this. So, he was preaching Jesus, which was a masculine term, a male name, and he was preaching Anastasis, which is where we get the, the female name Anastasia. It's the word for resurrection in Greek. These, these people had such a lack of framework for Paul's gospel message that when he said Jesus and resurrection, they thought he was talking about a male and female deity. That's why it says, they, he, look at the middle of verse 18. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, plural. Where are they getting that from? Because he was preaching Jesus and Anastasia, Anastasis, resurrection. They actually thought resurrection was a female deity perhaps, very likely, is is how they interpreted his message. Do you see why Paul has to step back and reframe the entire thing? Because they hear resurrection, they hear, oh, the goddess, uh, Anastasia. No, that's not not what I'm talking about. So even his basic message was being misunderstood. And, And look what they call him in verse 18. They say, what does this babbler wish to say? This, this word literally is made up of two Greek words put together. Spermologos, it just means seed picker. Seed picker. So, what does that mean? Well, it was actually a word used for birds. Uh, when seeds were scattered on the ground, birds would come out. You know how birds do, right? They go around there pecking away, picking up whatever seed they randomly happen to stumble upon. And so, they have this random assortment of seeds in their mouth as they go about their day. And they said, Paul seems to be some amateur, second-rate philosopher. 
He seems to have imbibed bits and pieces of all these different philosophical views. He's got a little bit of a Jewish perspective. He's got a little bit of a perspective over here and over here. He seems to just be a seed picker. He's like, he's just, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's going around picking up little pieces of, of beliefs from different philosophies, different religions. He's combined them together, and now he's preaching this resurrection of Jesus and the Jewish God, and we don't, we don't quite know what he's talking about. He seems like a second-rate philosopher. He's a seed picker. So, do we need to be ready to be called names and to be misunderstood for our bold stand for Jesus? Yes. Paul, do you think Paul wanted to be called a seed picker? That, that is not, that's not a compliment. Oh, he preaches a resurrection. What's wrong with this man? They're mocking him. So, number three, Paul is speaking to the academy here. Now, I, I will grant you, um, not all of us are probably going to have the ability to speak to the academy. I don't expect that I ever will. But some of you, you PhDs in the room, you may have a chance to speak in areas that most of us just won't get a chance to speak in. We're probably not going to get called before this elite group of the Areopagites to speak before them and to tell them this new belief system. But for those of you who perhaps do have, I think uh, <laughs> um, uh, Alistair Begg said, uh, a size 12 brain is what he called it. He says, most of us have size 8 brains. He said, some of you got the size 12 brains. And that's not me, but some of you do. He says, he says, that is both a curse and a responsibility <laughs> if you have that kind of intellect. He says, a blessing and a curse at the same time. But if you have that and the Lord gives you opportunities to speak into upper levels of the academy, then use that. And I'm telling you, if there's any place where you are going to be mocked, it is in the academy in particular for your belief in a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's just, it, it is going to be, it, it could be a hard place uh, for you to be. I, I think of Dr. Fritz Schaefer, who is one of the highest ranking scientists really at UGA, and um, he is a, just a diehard believer in the Lord Jesus, and he is unashamed about uh, his uh, faith, and I'm sure I've shared this years ago, but so Dr. Schaefer is in his, probably, he doesn't want me to tell you this, late 70s perhaps now, and he's still working at UGA, and he still gets invited. I know COVID slowed him down, but he still gets invited all over the world every year to speak. And I wondered how often he really did get invited to places. And Kelly and I, when we got married, we lived in their basement, which was incredibly helpful for us in many different ways. We got to live in their basement for over a year, about a year and a half in their basement. And so I got to actually witness up close and personal how often the man actually goes to like China and all these different places to speak. It was like every other week, he's packing his bags and he's out of here for four or five days and he's coming back and he would come walking through, <laughs> walking through our little area from the, from the garage and I'd stop him. I said, Dr. Schaefer, I was like, you're back. How did it go? He's like, well, it was pretty amazing. I got, I got, he spoke at like an all women's college in China with this elite college of just like really educated women there. And he said, well, you know, he gave his typical talk on science. And then he's like, well, you know, while I'm there, I always give my Christian talk, science and the Bible. So uh, on UGA's money, he could think, let me give a second talk. And he preaches the gospel to these people. And they look at him like they really respect him because his, his credentials are quite astonishing. He's the, I think he's the last I heard, he's the fourth most cited physicist, I think, living in terms of scholarly documents, because he's produced so many over the last several decades. Um, anyways, he's a big deal in that regard. And so when he speaks his second talk, he gives a gospel talk. And I asked him, I said, I, said, I don't think I said anything about his age, but I said, you know, what, what keeps you going? Because this is, I, I could not do that. You're, you're traveling so often and presenting the gospel so often all over the place. What keeps you going? And he, he said, Arnold Dalimore's two-volume biography of George Whitfield." did not expect that answer. I haven't even read much of it. Scott, you've read a good portion of it, I think. But that, that volume, uh, those two volumes, talks about George Whitfield tirelessly preached the gospel in Europe and in America for decades until he died in his 50s preaching the gospel. And, and he said Whitfield was relentless, and he, he was used by the Lord in a great way, and he said, he's my inspiration. 
He said, if God could give Whitfield the grace, uh, that same God is available for me. The same grace is available for me to keep, to keep going. So for some, the academy will be a place where we are able to speak uh, truth uh, to those who have questions to ask us. Okay, uh, back again, verse 18, uh, Epicurean and Stoic uh, philosophy. Now, do not fall asleep. I'm going to read what those two schools of thought believe. You going to stay awake? Okay. You're like, class doesn't start till the 18th, some of you are thinking. Okay. Here's uh, from one study Bible. I thought it's a good way to get at the core of Epicurean and Stoic thought. They're very different. See if Epicureanism sounds a little bit similar to belief today. A little bit. Number one, Epicureans believed that all that exists are minuscule packets of matter called atoms, okay? Uh, that humans are composed into… So, all that exists is the material physical world. Does that sound familiar? That humans are composed entirely of aggregate matter, thus ceasing to exist upon death. So, we, once we die, we are gone. And that life is conse- uh, consequently concerned with maximizing earthly pleasure through friendships and enjoyment of life. Does that sound relevant at all to anything you might think of today? Much of what secularism today is simply a slightly tweaked and repackaged Epicureanism from 300 B.C. And so, they did believe in gods, but they believed the gods were more like deism. The gods were far, far away. They had nothing to do with us on this earth. They were not in any way providentially involved with the goings-on here. They don't care about us. They're far away. They don't matter to us. All that matters, all that exists is matter. When you die, you're gone. And so, while you're here, carpe diem. That's all they have. Seize the moment. Seize the day. That's all they have. And in the moment, you just live for pleasure. And there's different ways you could do this. They did not actually like the more drunken party version of of hedonism where you just kind of go for all the pleasure you can in the moment, although some people certainly take that route today and and then. They were more a refined version of hedonism. They thought, no, 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 through friendship, through through maximizing your thinking, thinking rationally and leisure, uh, not by living a rampantly uh, crazy life, but just living a more of a middle-class life like we might think. If I maximize my pleasure, have a long, fun, enjoyable, good life, that's a success in Epicureanism. That is incredibly relevant to what we see today. Number two, the Stoics are a little less relevant to us today. The Stoics, quote, argued that the world was fundamentally the expression of a rational force called the Lagos. You wonder why John 1.1, in the beginning, was the Logos, the Word, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. You see, John is doing something there. Uh, so, th- th- they believe that th- this, uh, this rational force out there, the Logos, and that harmonious living required an exaltation of reason over spontaneous emotions in all of life. So, reason is what matters. Emotions are just a problem. Just suppress and get rid of, you know, you know, being stoic is a still a saying today. They're very stoic. They, they're very reserved in their emotions. They just think, but they don't feel anything. And so, stoics suppressed emotion, and they just wanted to, ha- to be rational in the way that they thought. Okay, let's continue here. Verse 19. Verse 19. And they took Paul, him, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Once again, has anything changed? I mean, you do know we call it the news, right, for a reason. It's just like R.C. Sproul had this great illustration. Back when everybody had paper, newspapers, 
Does anyone remember the paper newspaper? <laughs> so, thank you. So you remember on the street corner, you had the little black or red or whatever box there, and you put in the 25, 35 cents, or if it was Sunday, it was like 55 cents or whatever, and you put it in, and what do you do? You pull, you pull the little door open, the little spring door, and you reach in and you grab your paper. And Sproul said, you know, it's interesting, the difference between how those magazine stands or the newspaper stands used to work and how a Coke machine works. They both might sit right next to each other on the street corner, but what, what's different? Well, when you open the newspaper, there's like 15 newspapers open. You could take them all if you wanted to, right? You could steal newspapers easily. But nobody really does. But if it was a Coke machine and you put in your 55 cents or your dollar and it opened up and there was 10 Cokes available, I can imagine people be opening their bags when no one's looking and just pouring Cokes into their bag. Well, what's going on here? And Sproul said, well, th this shows you how at one point the news is so urgent to us. We are as human beings obsessed with what is new but if you open the news and you put your money in and you open it up, and he says, oh, the dreaded feeling, it's yesterday's newspaper. Oh, no. I've got nothing to do with yesterday's newspaper. I'm going to rat fish with that thing. I don't care about yesterday's newspaper. Well, what is it? The news feels so urgent to us. We're always checking our feeds on social media. What's the latest thing that's happening? And yet, do we care six days from now what we read in the news today? Most of the time, I'd say 95% of what we read in the news today, we completely forget by a month from now. It's, it just is so trivial and banal. And yet, these people here, all they care about is what's the newest scoop in philosophy? What's the latest theory of their theology? What's the latest theory? What's the latest idea? What's the newest thing? Because the newest thing is the most interesting thing, and after about five days, you leave it behind. You know, sadly, it's not true of conservative theologians, which is why they are conservative theologians. They conserve the truth. But uh, amongst more liberal theologians, the, what sells is what is new. So the, the newest theory on what Paul meant that no one's ever thought of before, that's the book that gets the attention. I think that's actually a sad statement. We, we don't like old things, even when they're true things. Sproul also said, he, you know, he, he was also in his late 70s or early 70s when he told this story. He got called up by a, a news organization in Florida where he lived at the time, and they said to him, they said, we want to get your insights as a theologian on topic X. I don't even know what it was. What do you think about this? And he gave his insight, which was just a biblical perspective, an old biblical perspective. And they basically said to him, oh, well, we know all that's the old stuff. We, 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 we want to hear something new. And he said, well, is true not good enough? <laughs> is God's Word not good enough? God's Word doesn't change. And so, uh, the good news of the gospel is also the old news of what Christ has done for us, and it is what we need. Okay, let's look at just the very beginning of Paul's speech. We won't go too far into this, but we'll go a few verses, and let's see how Paul begins his address here. Before I read it, let me just make a point. We cannot assume that they already have the framework of the gospel in place when we present the gospel. So, what do we need to do? Paul does a couple things. This is worth maybe jotting down. Number one, Paul finds a point of contact with his audience. He finds a point of contact, something he can connect with them on. He doesn't agree with them on it, but he at least starts, it's a, it's a jumping off point. He connects with them on something, which we'll see. And then he immediately begins to not just give a point of contact, but a point of contradiction. He begins to contradict uh, many of the things that they believe. And so let's look here at what Paul begins to say. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, 
here's maybe a way to modernize that and to do something similar. These Athenians took great pride in their philosophy and their religion. They were the city of idols, and they were proud of it. That's what, that was their calling card, was come see our amazing idols and temples. They were not embarrassed by that fact, but Paul does something. He observes their idols. Now, listen, this does not mean we get into the muck and mire of culture and watch things we shouldn't watch or read things we shouldn't read. I'm not saying that the way to apply this is like, let's go get really into the culture and watch a bunch of horrible stuff. That's not what I'm saying. But what Paul does, he walks through the city and he observes carefully their objects of worship. He studies what they've got. He sees what they're doing and he studies it long enough to find this idol. And when he sees this idol, he goes, I know how I'm going to start my message. This idol says, to the unknown God. Now, a couple things I think Paul finds perfect here. Number one, the Athenians are obsessed with what they know. And here they are admitting that there's something very important they don't know. Namely, there might be a God that they don't even know about yet. So, Paul finds on their own terms, they admit, there's a God we don't even know. So, you know, they, they're worshiping all these different gods, but maybe there's a God we, don't, we haven't heard of yet. So, to kind of hedge our bets, let's make an idol to the unknown God. And Paul says, okay, you who are so proud of your knowledge, admit that there's something of the divine that you don't know, you're ignorant of. Well, let me tell you about the unknown God. He's the one true creator God. So, Paul finds this point of contact. Now, a, a modern-day point of contact could be this. What is it that someone of their own worldview, whether another religion or secular, another worldview, what is it someone of another belief system will tell you, like, will actually admit to you, where do they show that something is not quite working in their own belief system? Have you seen this? Where someone admits something's not working on their own belief system? Uh, Caitlin Wood, now Caitlin, excuse me, Caitlin Wood used to be Caitlin Cato. Uh, for those who know her, she started coming to our church early on in our church's history, four-plus years ago, when she started coming, she was a full-blown atheist, but she was curious. And Caitlin will tell you, one of the things that kept her coming back to our church and to our small group and to spending time with you guys and asking questions and even reading books of the Bible, even though she was an atheist at the time, she was curious, she will tell you. In fact, she's told other people, because I've heard, she said it was the joy of the members of this church that really sent her thinking. She saw other people she worked with, Grant, Jose, Manuel, other people she worked with in the lab at UGA, and she saw a contentment, a joy in them, a actual happiness in them, even though they were doing the same thing she was doing, basically, and she was not as happy. She was more full of, she would tell you, anxious, empty, not feeling happy, not feeling joyful. They looked content and joyful and happy and like they had real purpose in life. She felt empty in this ache inside, and that ache was the it's kind of the idol to the unknown God. It's like something's wrong, something's missing, something's not quite right. And so she knew something was not right, and so she began asking questions, started coming to things, and over the course of what, two-plus years, I mean, you know, she would come for three months, and then she would leave for three months, and I was like, she's gone, she's not coming back. And she would come back, and then she would come back to our small group, and she would come to dinner, and all, on and on and on. And then eventually, she went from atheist to agnostic. I said, yes! <laughs> and then she went from agnostic to theist. I'll take it. <laughs> and then she went from theist to believer that Jesus is the true uh, Son of God, that He died for our sins, that He was buried, that He was raised, and that she could find forgiveness and atonement through Christ's finished work. And she believed in Jesus, and she told me about it on this front row at the end of a service one Sunday. She, I got to tell you something. This is going to be either really good or really not good. And so we sit down right here, and she says, it happened. What happened? It happened. I, I've been adopted her. And she said something like that. I said, well, what do you 
what do you mean? Uh, oh, spiritually. Oh, oh, oh. And then she, I was a little slow. And then she said, no, I, I, I've come to know the Lord. Like, I've been saved. Like, I know the Lord now. I'm like, well, tell me about it. And she tells me the story. It's just astonishing. And I know many of you heard the story. But she knew something wasn't right in her life. Something was not working for her. And there was this hole there. And she knew that there was an answer that you guys seemed to have that she didn't have. And that kept her coming back. Even when the Bible at first seemed really strange territory. She was reading Genesis going, what, what, what is going on here? What is this? And we were trying to, you know, over time, a lot of us were trying to answer some of her questions. So, if you know non-Christian, and even on their own terms, something is not quite right. Something's not quite as they want. I would zero in on that. I would make that a point of contact and begin to talk into that, speak into that, ask questions about that, and begin to draw them towards uh, the Lord Jesus. For the sake of time, I'm going to pause here. I'm going to, I'm going to get to communion. I'm going to pause the sermon here. We'll pick up for next Sunday because we've got a lot more to cover in this particular uh, message from, from Paul. But w- would you please turn with me to, uh, to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you're turning there, what, again, what Paul is going to do in the next verses of this message is he's going to begin to systematically deconstruct the worldview of his listeners. Both Epicurean and Stoics are going to be offended in an act of loving offense. They're going to be offended by what Paul's going to say. He's going to begin to take out some of their core beliefs, remove them, contradict them, and then he's going to be, he's not just deconstructing their old view, he's also then going to reconstruct a biblical framework from basically Genesis to Revelation. He gives you an overview very briefly of the whole Bible story so that the person of Christ actually makes sense within that larger framework. And let me just, as we turn here, let me just say to you, That basic framework that he's going to get to is this. There is one God who made everyone and everything on the planet. And we, because we are His, we owe everything to Him. Your mind is His gift to you, so any of our thinking that doesn't honor Him is not right. It is called sin. He gave us our affections, our heart, our desires. Any of our desires that love the world rather than Him are sinful. They're not honoring the God who made us. Our, Our strength that He's given us. Any of our strength that's not used for Him is being misused in a way that is sinful, and we are accountable for how we use the gifts and the abilities and the talents that God has given us. And not one of us in this room has properly used His thinking, His feeling, His strength, His whole body and self or herself the way we should. Listen, Christianity is not a club for the better than others. That's not what this is. Christianity is for those who have finally reached the end of themselves and say, I can't save myself. No matter what I do, I will not be good enough to stand before a holy God who made me and give an account. But I will tell you what, God, because He loves sinners, He loves sinners, He has made a way through the work of His Son and His atonement for us to be washed clean, renewed, and restored, to be adopted into God's family, to call God not our wrathful judge, but our loving heavenly Father because of the work of Jesus. We can stand holy in the beloved, all because of the work of Jesus. This news is urgent. It is wonderful because all of us one day will stand before the God who made us. We we will give an account to that God. And the bad news is if we are left without Christ, we will be left on our own. But if we are secure in Christ, we will be rescued from God's judgment. Let me just add, if you have not trusted Christ right now, if you will turn and trust Him, you will be saved forgiven from this moment on. On the night before Christ's betrayal, He said these words, 1 Corinthians 11, 
Look with me at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And then there's a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we, are ju- but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world." So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give you directions when I come. These elements here are not in any way mystical or magical. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, we would ask you not to partake. What you need is not what these things symbolize. What you need is the symbols. You, you, excuse me. These are, you don't need the symbols. You need what they actually symbolize, which is the person of Jesus Himself which you can have right now in your seat. But if you are a believer in Jesus and you have turned from sin and trusted in Christ, you are not currently walking in deliberate, unrepentant sin, uh, then you, uh, after a moment here of prayer, you can come forward as you choose and take of the elements and return to your seat, and then we will continue worshiping together. Let's, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, as we think about some of the gods that were believed in at the time in Rome, we see vengeful selfish gods. We see gods who were sinful, really, in their behavior, uh, who did evil and wicked things over and over and over and were no better than us, just more powerful than us. But when we look to the God that Paul preached at Mars Hill, we see a God who, as one person said, did not strut but stumbled to His throne, who did not put on a crown of gold and jewels but a crown of thorns who did not put on a rich king's royal robe, but wore a mock robe of purple, who instead of a king's scepter placed in his hand was hit over the head with a reed, a king who instead of being bowed down to and worshipped was spit upon and mocked, a king who was betrayed by one of his twelve for money, and a king who loves sinners to death. Lord, I pray that as we come forward in just a moment that you would help us as believers to be deeply moved by what Christ has done for us. He was forsaken, that we might never be forsaken. Lord, let that just land on us, that these things represent the very body and blood of your Son, which was given for His own. And so I pray that we would be humbled, that we would be encouraged, that we would be led to genuine rejoicing as we sing in response to this wonderful news. And God, please make us, make me more bold, more forthright in the marketplace. Help me to be more courageous in the marketplace. Help me to be more direct in my speech. Help me not to be so afraid of what people think. Help me not to be so intimidated by what people might say or feel about me once I identify publicly with you. Help me to step forward. Certainly, you, Lord Jesus, were not ashamed to be identified with us on the cross, 
how much more should we be identified with you, even if it includes mockery uh, and, and a condescending look. And so, God, give us courage and help us to be more bold. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.